Amen. Let's pray together, brothers and sisters. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your spirit is thick in this place. It reminds us that you have already heard our prayers. That you have already went ahead of us to soften hearts. You have already went ahead of us to prepare your word. That, Lord, you have something for us today. And so, Lord, we come to you. And as your children, we plead with you, Lord, don't leave us the same. Don't let us leave here as the same man or the same woman or the same teenager as we were when we got here. Lord, let, let us leave with greater conviction. Let us leave with greater liberty. Let us leave with greater courage. Lord, let us leave with greater passion for your name, more clearly reflecting your name. Lord, do something in us that you can only do. Move in us now, Lord. Move in us through your word. Move in us with your spirit. May I be filled with the spirit as I preach. May they be filled with the spirit as they receive. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever struggled with doubt in your Christian faith? Has there ever been time in your life or seasons in your life, periods in your life, and when, for whatever reason, you were facing profound doubt, temporary unbelief even? Maybe it was during difficult circumstances. Maybe it was while you were burying your child or you came home and your wife was no longer there. And you just wondered, God, really? Are you there? Are you really there? Are you really sovereign? Are you really in control? Maybe for you it was that Jesus didn't meet the expectations that you had for him. You thought that if you come to Jesus that your marriage would be okay. You thought that if you come to Jesus and you raised your children in the church that they would never depart from it. You thought that if you would just come to Jesus that you would have a peace that's always there or that the bitterness that you've had towards your dad that checked out on you would just magically be resolved and no longer be an issue. But you still have to deal with that insecurity, don't you? And your marriage is still difficult. And it still works. And so you're left thinking, Jesus, you didn't meet my expectations. And so you doubt. Maybe you doubt because of what you heard in science class. Maybe you doubt because of uh, hearing from Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins and, and other uh, evangelistic atheists. And the word and the reason that they have and the logic that they use. And it's enticing to you and it's drawing you in. And so for whatever reason you find yourself asking big questions and filled with big uncertainty. And what you know is that with doubt comes guilt for the Christian. With doubt comes guilt. How could I? Who am I? How in the world can I have these questions? How in the world can I have this concern? How can I have that thought? How is it that that can be appealing to me? What if I told you that doubt exists in the life of Christians in the New Testament? What if I told you that, that if we just kind of point to the elephant in the room, the one that all of us are kind of know that we've experienced or are experiencing, but just kind of want to deny and pretend like it's not there? Like, like what if we point to that elephant and say, that is a common experience for Christian people? 
and to see how it is that we should respond. I believe the place that we are going to be this morning in God's Word is just such an instance. Not the only one in the New Testament, but one of them. And so if you have God's Word, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Last week we kind of jumped over the first part of Matthew chapter 11 and jumped, and jumped straight to, chapter, uh, to verse 25. And so what I want to do this week is go back to verse 1. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? We're going to read the first 19 verses together. And God's inerrant word says, When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before him. Before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to Matthew chapter 11, Jesus has just sent all of his disciples out into the world. He has prepared them for what is to come. He has prepared them for the persecution that lay ahead. He has even told them that my disciples, if they are true disciples, will endure all the way to the end. That saved is the one that lasts until the end, that endures until the end. It says that he has sent them out as sheep among the wolves so that the wolves might then be transformed into sheep. But what we see when we come to Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, is we see that Jesus is not the kind of general that sits in an air-conditioned office while his soldiers are out having shrapnel penetrating their bodies. That Jesus is the kind of general that leads from the front lines. 
that Jesus is not the kind of general that says, all right, soldiers, you go and do the work. I'm just going to live a fat and easy life back here. Jesus is the kind of general that goes to the front lines and leads the charge. He goes out to preach. He goes out among the wolves. He goes out to preach to all the cities of Galilee. If you follow Jesus, this is where you will follow him. You will follow him to the front lines. You will follow him to the places where shrapnel flies. You will follow him to the place where the wolves live. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to go? For all of you who call yourself disciples of Jesus, are you willing to go? When we come to verses 2 and 3, we really come to some pretty remarkable verses. We have John the Baptist. The one, and we're given the prophecy there in verse 10, the one that is prophesied in the book of Malachi chapter 3 that says this is the forerunner of the Christ. This is the forerunner of the Messiah that is to come. That he will go out in the power of Elijah and he will sound the trumpet to say the king has come. That we're given this glimpse into the heart of this forerunner. We're given a glimpse into the heart of the great prophet, the final prophet that was to come. And when we see inside of his heart, we don't find there what we expect to find. When we look into John's heart, we expect to see valor and courage and resolve and deepening conviction. But what do we really see? Doubt. Doubt. That by this point, it's quite likely that John could have been in jail for a year or close to a year. And as he's laid there in jail, he's heard the reports of the ministry of Jesus. And what's happened? Doubt has crept in. Doubt has crept in because Jesus apparently was not even who John the Baptist expected him to be. John had went out and he had preached that the kingdom has come. The kingdom has come. He had pointed to Christ and said, the Lamb of God the kingdom has come. He will baptize with the Spirit. I baptize with water. He will baptize with the Spirit. He had identified Christ as the Messiah. He had been there as he had baptized Jesus himself and watched heaven break open with the voice of God, seeing the, the bodily form of the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. With God saying, behold, my son, in whom I am well pleased. John, an eyewitness to all of that, as he stares down the barrel of the gun, as the noose tightens around his neck, wonders, is this really what the kingdom looks like? If the kingdom has come, is this really what it's supposed to be? Me, the messenger in jail? Me, the messenger headed toward a certain death? Me, the messenger enduring hell on earth? Is this really the kingdom having come? John had preached that when Jesus' ministry began, that he would begin both preaching, uh, both with blessing and with judgment. But as the reports are coming in, John is hearing only of forgiveness. John is hearing only of, of, the, of the blind seeing. He is hearing only of blessing and no judgment. And he's wondering, did I get it wrong? Did I point to the wrong man? Did I, did, I, did I hear the voice of God wrong? And he doubts. 
He doubts in what he said. He doubts what he's seen. He doubts what he's experienced. He doubts what he has known in the past to be unequivocally true. And John is proof that there is no person too godly for doubt. John is the proof that there is no person too godly for doubt. He is the forerunner of the Christ. He is the one that came in the strength of Elijah. He is the one that is the prophecy fulfilled from 400 years ago. And yet there is uncertainty in his heart. There are questions in his heart. You see, wherever there is faith for a sinful person, wherever there is belief in a fallen world, there is certainly doubt crouching nearby. It is the reality of the frailty and the weakness of our flesh. It is the common experience of every Christian, of every person of faith, that they will experience temporary seasons of unbelief. They will experience temporary moments of doubt in which all of the assurance of their faith is in question and the certainty they have in Christ is uncertain. Matter of fact, John MacArthur observes that when he reads the New Testament, that every single time that the subject of doubt comes up, it's always addressed to Christians. That it's not a new experience in our day. It's not a new experience just because we've, we're after the enlightenment. It's not just a new experience because Darwin's book has come out. It's a common experience dating all the way back to the first century. I think one of the things that I most look forward to about the day that I'm in the presence of God. About the day that I am joined, perhaps, with my, with my resurrected body. Is that in that moment, no longer will I see God through stained eyes. No longer will I think about God with a defiled mind. No longer will I see and experience God with an impure heart. That in that moment, I will see God as he really is. And I will experience God as he really is. And I will think about God as he truly is. Can you imagine what that will be like? Maybe this morning you're there and you say, well, I don't ever experience doubt. I, I hear what you're saying, but that's not my experience. I never have uncertainty. I never doubt Christ. I never doubt my salvation and security in Christ. You do, you're just not honest about it. Do you have anxiety in your life? Are you ever anxious about anything? Anxiety is always the result of unbelief. That you don't believe that Jesus will provide. That you don't believe that Jesus will protect. That you don't believe that Jesus will come through for you. Has Jesus called you to go to the mission field and to go on a mission trip? Has he called you to give generously? Has he called you to, to live radically and let yet, at the end of the day, you think, I just, I just can't do that yet. I'm just not there yet. Why do you do that? You doubt. You doubt that Christ is sufficient. You doubt that Christ is supreme. You doubt how secure you are in his grip. You doubt how powerful, how powerfully you go out in his authority. Are you in serving in the church or serving the kingdom in some other way, in some other place, and you think, I just can't do it another day. 
I'm weary, I'm worn, I'm beaten down, I seem ineffective, I just can't serve another day. It's doubt. You are doubting in your mind whether or not Christ is worth your exhaustion. You're doubting in your mind whether or not Christ is worthy, worthy of your sacrifice. Yeah, brothers and sisters, you've doubted. You've had times of unbelief. You've just never been honest with yourself about it before. This morning, my prayer has been, over the course of this whole week, that God would set some of you free. That God would set some of you free. You see, I feel like over the last several years that the church has been largely dishonest about the reality of doubt in the life of the Christian. Churches, often perhaps even even well-intentioned as they may have been, have equated in our minds that doubt equals lostness, and by doing so, have placed a straitjacket around the majority of their membership. Because we are so filled with guilt, we are so filled with, with powerlessness in our lives that we never accomplish anything for the glory of God because we think, if I'm not certain, how can I teach anybody else? We've never, been, we've never received help. We've never received discipleship in the area. We've never had the, uh, felt like there's enough freedom to be vulnerable about these questions that we have or these thoughts that we have with another Christian. And so we just head on perilously and just in guilt and powerless living. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Doubt does not equal lost. Doubt does not even equal ungodliness. Just a few verses later, Jesus is going to call John the greatest man who has ever lived. So are you doubting? Are there moments in your life that you've never been willing to be honest with another person about? My prayer is, is that you would be set free today. That you would be liberated from the guilt that Christ would meet you where you are. Because if verses 2 and 3 feel like bad news to us, then verses 4 and 5 are unimaginable good news for us. Because I want you to notice Jesus' response. How does Jesus respond to John? Does, does Jesus just look back at John and say, John, suck it up? Does Jesus look back at John and say, John, you better figure it out? Does Jesus even look back at John and say, how dare you, John? No, Jesus, he, he gives a gentle rebuke, perhaps, in verse 6, quoting Isaiah chapter 8. But what Jesus does is what Jesus always does with his doubting children. Jesus goes to where John is, he meets him there, and gives him exactly what he needs to persevere. This is what Jesus always does. Think about how Jesus responds. Let's just read it together, verses 4 and 5. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. How does John respond? You might not even catch the subtlety of what Jesus has said. Luke's same account of the story in chapter 7 says that the way Jesus does it, so the two disciples of John come, and what Jesus does is right then and right there in front of them, he does these miraculous things. And then he tells them to go. But what you might not catch is that when Jesus says, he quotes directly from no less than four 
prophetic, messianic passages from the book of Isaiah. Here's what he's saying. Not only am I powerful enough and sovereign enough and almighty enough to give blind people the ability to see and deaf people the ability to hear and paralyzed people the ability to get up and walk. Not only can I raise dead people from the dead, but I can do it in perfect fulfillment of the prophetic word of God. That I am the prophecy fulfiller. I am the promise keeper. I am who you said that I was. He sends them back to John by saying this. John, open your Bible again. Open your Bible again and then hear the testimony of your disciples. Open your Bible and read the prophetic word and then hear the testimony of the prophecy fulfilled. John, be assured that I am who you say that I am. Jesus goes to John and gently lovingly, gloriously, gives John exactly what John needs in that moment to persevere in his faith. And this is exactly what he does with you and what he does with me. That in his perfect way and in his perfect timing and according to his perfect will, Jesus will ensure that every single one of his disciples, every single one of those that are, that are in him, whose heart are bound to Christ, he will ensure that every single one of us perseveres. And he will do it by giving us exactly what we need, the way that we need it, when we need to receive it. This is what it means when we talk about Christ, is keeps us. That he keeps us. That he holds to us. This is why we, we talk about the, the glorious doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We don't persevere because we are strong. We persevere because we are in Christ. We are yoked to Christ. And Christ is strong. And so, this morning, maybe you're wondering, how does Jesus do this? How does he enable our persevering? Jesus has millions and millions of means of grace, millions and millions means of perseverance that he uses in our lives to ensure that we press on in the faith, to ensure that we can overcome our doubts. And the means are just as spectacular and just as beautiful as the end of assurance itself. Maybe Jesus uses this sermon or any other sermon to help overcome the doubt in your faith. Maybe Jesus uses the support of your church family rallying around you, bearing the burden with you. Maybe Jesus uses the time that you're reading through his word and all of a sudden a light bulb comes on and the spirit illuminates the passage for you. Perhaps he uses the counsel of a wise friend. Perhaps he uses a song that John leads us in and all of a sudden the truth just strikes you like a locomotive. Maybe it's the, the stead, steadiness of the sun always rising. Maybe it's the, the beautiful innocence of your infant child. Maybe it's the consistent, steadfast love that you find in your own heart towards your own difficult-to-love, rebellious teenager. But whatever the means of grace is, whether you see it or you don't, whether you're aware of what it is or you're not aware of what it is, Jesus is working in your life to ensure your perseverance, to ensure that you know what it is to be kept by Christ, yoked to Christ. 
So much so that I believe that perhaps the, one of the greatest markers of assurance and of the faith that we can have is to look back over the history of our lives and to see the different ways that Jesus has helped us to persevere. To look back over the whole of our Christian faith and to think about other crises of faith and other difficulty seasons and other seasons of uncertainty and other seasons in which we couldn't figure all of it out. And to look back over the whole of our life and to see Jesus was faithful there and Jesus was faithful there and Jesus was faithful there. And if Jesus has been faithful over the whole of your life, you can be certain that you are his child. You can be certain that you are in his grip being kept by him. So what do you do? Maybe this morning you're struggling with doubt and you just wonder, what can I do? How is it that I can overcome the uncertainty in my life? You know what you need to do? Exactly what John did. Exactly what John did. You need to take your question. You need to take your uncertainty. And you need to go to Jesus with it. You need to take your question Take your uncertainty, take your doubt, and go to Jesus with it. That, and by saying that, practically what I mean, mean is, is that you need to take advantage of every means of perseverance that Jesus has given to you in order to overcome your doubt. What should you do if you find doubt in your life? You should go to church. You should hear the God's word preached to you. You should hear God's word sang and elevated. You should dial into every word. What should you do? You should read the word of God, treasuring it in your life, praying, God, show me the truth. God, open it up. God, let me see it rightly as you intended it to be. What should you do? You should go to a Christian friend that you trust and know that loves you and loves the Lord. And you should be vulnerable with them and break your heart open and say, here's the doubt that is there, as ugly and nasty as it is. Would you just help me? Would you pray with me? Would you counsel me? Would you give me advice? What should you do? You should pray to the Lord and ask the Lord to speak to you and to break open the silence of heaven and to come into your life and bring assurance where it was not already there. What should you do? You should go and you should pursue and pursue and pursue every means of perseverance and grace that Christ has graciously and beautifully and powerfully given to you as his child. And you will persevere. And you will persevere. I'm not saying it's like eating a magic pill and all questions go away in a second. I'm not saying that you're going to overcome this season of doubt and never have another season of doubt. What I'm saying is, is that every single time, every single day, God's mercies are new. And that every single day, Christ will give you enough grace to press on in that day. That he will meet you with what you need, with what he has, and he will yoke himself to you, and he will press on in. What's amazing is that John comes to Jesus with doubt. And then as Jesus sends away his disciples, John's disciples, what does Jesus do? He defends John. Do you notice that? So John comes to Jesus in doubt... Say, I'm not even sure that you are who I said you were. I'm not even sure that you're really the Messiah. I'm not even sure that I can really count on you. Like, I'm just not sure of any of that. Jesus responds to John, helps John in his persevering, and then proceeds to the crowd to defend the man that just doubted him. Jesus is the defender of his people. Jesus is the defender of his people. 
So Jesus says in verse 11 what are two absolutely outrageous statements. Absolutely outrageous statements. Let's look at them together. Verse 11, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So there, there are two outrageous statements that Jesus is making in that one verse. Now, and the second is much more outrageous than even the first. And I, we're going to get there, okay? So the first thing that Jesus says, the first outrageous statement that Jesus makes is that John the Baptist is the greatest person, the greatest human being that has ever lived in the history of the world up until that point. Not the greatest prophet, not the greatest one of God's people, the greatest person in all of human history. He says it plainly, that he is the greatest man born of a woman. Well, guess who that encompasses? Everybody. Like, everybody been born of a woman. You know, I know Adam and Eve would raise their hand and say, not me, not me, not me, but come on, get the point. You know what I'm saying? You, you've brought lostness into the world. You don't win. So, I don't know. But think about what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is looking at these, this crowd, and this man has just brought doubt to him. He looks back at the crowd, and he says, out of all of them. Uh, yes, Noah, God saved from the flood. Yes, Abraham, God used to deliver up and make a chosen and mighty nation. Yes, through David, we established an eternal kingdom. Through Moses, God ro rolled up to him in a burning bush and then used him to deliver his people from slavery. Yes, Isaiah got a peek into heaven. Daniel slept with lions. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego escaped the fiery furnace. Yes, we know about Jeremiah. Yes, I know about Ezekiel. But all of them, the greatest out of everybody, the greatest is this man named John. This man who lives out in the wilderness, eating grasshoppers, drinking honey with a, a camel hair jacket and a leather belt, screaming at everybody all the time. He is the greatest. It makes no sense. Like, what is Jesus talking about? Why is it that Jesus would point to, point to John... And say, John the baptizer, John the guy that dunks people in water and yells at them both ways. But why is he the greatest? See, to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to have a, a big picture of what God's doing in the story of redemption. To understand what, what Jesus is, uh, is meaning when he says that John is the greatest, you have to understand how God had been working over the whole of the Old Covenant. How, how God had been working even all the way from the garden up until this point. See, throughout old, the Old Covenant, God would raise up these Old Testament saints, right? And what would he use them to do? He would use every single one of them to point forward to Jesus. And slowly but surely, they would begin more clearly and more clearly and more clearly uncovering the picture of redemption, of this, this rescuer that God was going to send, the seed of Abraham that was going to be raised up. That would deliver God's people once and for all. That would sit on the throne of David and reign forever. And so slowly but surely, the, the revelation of God is slowly progressing. And it's becoming more clear and more clear and more clear. But the truth is, is it's always a little veiled. It's always, you have to dig for it. You have to know that it was there. You have to have the Spirit's help. But when we get to John, it changes. When we get to John, John isn't speaking in any kind of veiled language. John isn't, isn't slowly uncovering the picture. No, John 
points to Jesus and said, that is the Lamb of God. Behold. He says, clearly, clearly, he reveals Christ. And this is why John is great. John is greater than anybody that has ever come before him because John is the one that most clearly points to Christ. John is the one that most clearly points to the, re- to the, the Savior that, Jesus, that God has sent to rescue the world. See, John is a hinge point between two eras, between the era of prophecy and the area of fulfillment, between the, area, the era of promise and the era of promise kept. In fact, John himself is both a prophet and a prophecy fulfilled. And so he is the hinge point. He is the end of the Old Covenant. He is the end of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the end of the promises that God is making, of the prophecies that God is making, of the one that has come. And with Christ is inaugurating a new day, a new era, the era of salvation, the era of fulfillment, the era of promises kept. Which leads us to the second outrageous statement that Jesus makes in verse 11. Not only does he say with a straight face that John is the greatest man, the greatest person, the greatest human being in all of human history. But then he says something even more audacious. He says that the least of those in my kingdom, the least of those in the kingdom of heaven are even greater than him. Think about that. Whoa, whoa, easy Jesus. What in the world are you talking about here? Greater than John, who was greater than Elijah, who was greater than Moses, who was greater than Abraham. Like, greater than him? Whoa, easy. Why? It's the comparison of the two eras. John would never know what it meant to be a new covenant Christian. John would never know what it was like To see and to know that you have been saved by the resurrected, risen, crucified Christ. John would never know what it was like to live his life with total access to the throne room of God. God, John would never know what it was like to go out and to spread the news of a resurrected Savior by the power of the resurrection itself. John would never know the glory and the beauty and the power of being a new covenant Christian. But we do. But we do. You see, even more clearly than he revealed himself through John, Christ is revealing himself through us. Any greatness that we have is not because we are great. It is because Christ has been made great through us. That Christ has been made clear in us. We are all testimonies to Christ's power. We are all testaments to what Jesus is capable of. That he saved the least of these like us. That he delivered wretches like me and you. We are the living. We are the royal priesthood. We are the living stones. We are the testament to the resurrection's power. And we know Christ as crucified, risen, and personally now. John never got that. Now in Christ, a prostitute can see as clearly as a prophet. In Christ, a slave has a greater position, a greater greater prominence, a greater uh, access than a king. 
tax collectors can approach the throne of God in a way that priests never could. That in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of Christ, in new covenant Christianity, the prostitute, the tax collector, and the slave are greater than the prophet, the priest, and the king. But don't miss this. Because with Jesus' definition of greatness, he issues to his disciples an unequivocal, irreputable responsibility. That it is our job, wherever we go, whether it's at a block party on Timberview Lane, whether it's at Honda when you go to work there, whether it's at, at White Plains High School when you show up for school, that it is our responsibility as disciples of Jesus to make Jesus clearly known everywhere that we go. That in our lives and through our lives and by our living, to over and over and over, clearly, audaciously, boldly point to Jesus and say, He is the sufficient Savior. He is the one that reigns on high. He is the one that has fulfilled the prophecies of old. He is the new covenant that has made the old covenant obsolete. It is if you are a doctor, being the kind of doctor that makes Jesus clearly known. It says, if you work at the depot, being a depot worker, that makes Jesus clearly known. If you're a, a football player, it's being a football player that makes Jesus clearly known in your life. Consider what it means that we now live in a time of fulfillment. That's where we run. The way that our doubting hearts can find security is in Christ's fulfillment. Who other than God can perfectly fulfill hundreds of years of prophecy by doing the miraculous? Who other than God himself can be resurrected from the dead, having told you that he would be? Where do you go with your doubt? Where do you go with your uncertainty? Don't be offended. Don't, 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 don't allow Jesus to be an obstacle to you like he says in verse 6. Instead, run to him. Run to Jesus. Run to him and bring him your doubt. Bring him your uncertainty and be settled and be secure. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is amazing. It is life 